Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 8. In the last episode, I mentioned that chapters 7 and 8 represent the middle section in this three-part book. In the book of Zechariah, we have three distinct blocks of material. A series of night visions running from chapter 1, verse 7 through to chapter 6, verse 15. A series of oracles in chapter 7, verse 1 through to 8, 23. And then finally, a section of eschatological writings beginning in chapter 9 and carrying on through to the end of chapter 14. So this is the second half of the middle section of the book here as we enter into chapter 8. This section begins with a question about fasting from a delegation sent from the town of Bethel. The funny thing, though, you may remember, is that God didn't answer the question, at least not right away. They had a question about religious ritual, and God takes them on a journey to talk about a bunch of things that are far more important to him than that. He talks to them about obedience mercy, love, and justice. So there's a bit of a reminder here in this for you. If you ask God a question, he may tell you what you really need to know before he tells you what you think you need to know. So conduct yourselves accordingly. Now, if you happen to be listening to these episodes back-to-back on a long commute or something like that, then you will probably notice the rapid change in tone as we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary remarks on that, saying, Without any transition, the prophet switches from the outworking of God's wrath to reassurance of his loving concern, closed quote. And it is somewhat jarring, uh, but I think it is intentional and instructive. There are various motivations for obedience. There is, perhaps most immediately, the fear of negative consequences. That may not be the most noble motivation, but it is often the most impressive and most immediate. This is the one you learn early on in life as a child. If you touch that stove, Johnny, it will burn your hand. If you tell a lie to mama, she's going to wash your mouth out with soap. If you don't clean your room, you're not going to get any dessert. Obedience, at least initially, is generally pursued out of a desire to avoid negative consequences, whether natural consequences or punitive consequences. That was the theme in chapter 7. God reminded them that They had experienced all manner of unpleasant consequences in the past because of their poor behavior. Now, did they really want to go down that road again? That's what he's asking them. But now here in chapter 8, we encounter a very different approach. Here God speaks to them about hope. He talks about all the blessings that he has planned. He says, there's so much good coming. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to position yourself to enjoy that? That's the motivation being foregrounded in this chapter. Here God is saying, I love you. I am for you. I have big plans that I intend for you to be a part of. Therefore, walk this way. Little carrot, little stick, right? Our Heavenly Father is a good, wise, and well-practiced parent. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem 
shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So obviously the main theme here is that God is committed to the restoration and future security of the Jewish people. The exile was not him abandoning the covenant community. It was him purifying the covenant community. It was a time out, not a death sentence. God can be firm in his discipline, but he is faithful in his love and commitment. That's the idea. Now, verse 2 contains some language that the first-time Bible reader may struggle with. God says that he is jealous for Zion and that he is jealous, in fact, with great wrath. What does that mean? The ESV expository commentary is helpful here. It says, Jealousy refers to God's willingness to defend what rightly belongs to him by judging with great wrath, both those who oppose his people and those of his people who refuse him. Closed quote. So there is a bad sort of jealousy. It's bad, for example, to be jealous of your friend's girlfriend. Uh, probably you remember that song, if you're my age, uh, by Rick Springfield, I Wish That I Had Jesse's Girl. Well, that's bad jealousy. But this here in Zechariah 8 is good jealousy. This is God saying that he is committed to fighting for the purity and devotion of his covenant bride. This is God saying that he is jealous with great wrath, meaning he's willing to do hard things to produce good results. Here we get an echo of the 8th century BC prophet Hosea. In Hosea, God pictures himself as a husband whose wife leaves him to go into prostitution. And God basically busts her out. And then he takes her away for a time of forced detoxification. Like how you might put your wife into a rehab program if she had become addicted to drugs and just wasn't herself. If you were jealous for your wife and willing to do really hard things to restore her and to restore your marriage, you might do something like that. God did something like that. And that is how his people should think of the exile. It wasn't God hating them. It was God loving them enough to do the hard thing that had to be done. But now... Good things lie ahead. That's the transition. Enough talk of exile. Let's talk now of restoration. Jerusalem will once again be a peaceful and prosperous city. It will be a place of holy worship. It will be a good place to live and raise a family. Old men and old women will sit in the streets. Children will laugh and play. Does that seem unlikely to you? Is it marvelous in your eyes? I promise it will come to pass, God says. I will bring people back here from everywhere to which they have been scattered. They shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So this is a promise of restoration and renewal. Praise the Lord. Verse nine, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, 
You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Here we have Zechariah encouraging the people to note the change in their circumstances since they responded so positively to the preaching of the prophets, presumably himself and Haggai, though perhaps there were others as well. The most obvious reference, though, would seem to be to the message spoken by Haggai and recorded for us in Haggai chapter 1. The situation there was that the people had put off the task of rebuilding the temple. They were facing a ton of local opposition, and there was chaos in the wider empire. So confirmation of their permission and funding was hard to come by. So they put the whole project on hold. They began building their homes and seeing to their fields and businesses. And then all of a sudden, the economy tanked. Haggai 1, 5 to 6 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Closed quote. So God says that the economy tanked because I was withholding blessing from you and it won't improve until you return with earnest to the task that I set before you. I'm not going to bless rebellion. I'm not going to encourage disobedience and distraction. Again, God sounds for all the world like a really wise and experienced parent. Then in verses 7 to 11, he tells them how to position themselves for better results. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors, closed quote. That's Haggai 1, 7 to 11. So there God says, it's pretty simple, boys and girls. Get back to work on the project I recruited you for in the first place, and I will open up the windows of heaven and bless and prosper the work of your hands. I'll help you build my house, and then when that's done, I'll help you build your own houses, and I will cause your fields and your businesses to flourish. How's that sound, everybody? Well, as you know, it sounded pretty good, and the work was resumed. The temple foundation was cleared and relayed. And now here, Zechariah is saying, think about how much better things have been for all of us since we did that. Things were bad before that time, and they've been really good since. Therefore, strengthen your hands 
and finish the job. If we continue in our obedience, then the blessings and the favor are going to continue to fall. <laughs> Carrot and stick, right? That's, that's what this is. God is using positive reinforcement here. He is promising an outpouring, a shower of blessings upon every single step of obedience and faith. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Therefore fear not, but let your hands be strong. Verses 14 to 15 provide a bit of a summary of the preceding 13 verses. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. That's the transition we spoke about off the top. Carrot and stick. I, I used the exile as a strong punishment, God says. Now I'm using these promises of blessing as a strong incentive. What I want is for you to do the work I've called you to do and to be the people I've saved and equipped you to be. That's the Father's purpose in all of this. Now he gets real practical. He spells it all out for them, starting in verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Pause. By the way, wouldn't it just be marvelous? I, I, anytime you see verses like this, I, I just think, I wish there were more of these. I, I like things to be very clear. And, and it doesn't get any clearer than this. Listen to verse 16 again. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. I feel like that paragraph has definitely got to be highlighted in your Bible. It, that, that's gold right there. We want to know what will please the Lord and, and, and what would displease the Lord. Well, here it is. Now, let's just pause here and, and, and zoom out a bit so that we can spot an important biblical pattern. Because most of us evangelicals in the Western world tend to think of salvation as an end unto itself because we're individuals. We're raised to be individuals. So, of course, what could be more important than the salvation of me? <laughs> so, salvation in our minds becomes the end. But actually, in the Bible, if you're paying attention, salvation is a means. God saves us and helps us and disciplines us and encourages us so that we can be the people he originally created and intended us to be. We see that here, obviously, but we see it in the New Testament as well. Think of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you hear that? That's the same exact perspective that we're seeing here. God saves us and blesses us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. The end is glory to God through a restored and properly functioning covenant community. That's the end. Salvation and blessing are the means to that end. That's hard for Western evangelicals to understand. We're, I mean, we're just happy to be saved. Now we're going to go have a nap and wait for Jesus to come back. No, there is work to do. There is a process of restoration and renewal to lean into. 
There are blessings to lay hold of. There is strength to put on. There is a witness and a ministry to be engaged. We're seeing that exact same emphasis and pattern here in this passage. All that has gone on, the redemption, the discipline, the blessing, all that has been toward the end of a restored and properly functioning covenant partner. So this passage is telling us what that will look like. At the end of that process, what God is after here, okay, is a covenant community that is speaking the truth, a covenant community that is rendering true judgments, a covenant community that is pursuing peace, a covenant community where people are not devising evil against one another, where, where, where they're not loving or affirming false oaths, because those are things that God hates, and we love God, and we want to do only that which is pleasing to him. So, that's who we're supposed to be. That's where God has taken us, by carrot and by stick, by grace and by ardent covenant love and commitment. Praise the Lord. Now, with all that being said, God finally circles back around and answers the original question of the delegation from Bethel. I suppose they've been standing there patiently waiting for an answer to their question, and they've got more than they bargained for. So having said what God wanted to say, he now addresses what these folks thought was important. We get into that in verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. <laughs> so, after quite the interlude, God says, now, about those fasts that you were asking about, we're not going to have those anymore because it wouldn't be appropriate. The time for mourning over the past is over. From now on, I want the emphasis to be on gratitude and rejoicing. So he tells them to replace the fasts with feasts. And he reminds them also, love, truth, and peace. I love that. Remember, the thing that got God going on this whole interlude in the first place was the immaturity of the original question. As immature people often do, they were making a major deal out of a minor issue. So God talks to them at length about things that really matter. Obedience really matters. Love really matters. Truth really matters. Justice really matters. And peace really matters. So he talks about that. And then he says, oh yes, and we will make some changes to the liturgy. But then when he tells them what those changes are, he adds, oh, and also love, truth, and peace. Because sometimes as a parent, you have to say the main thing in the middle and then again at the end, just to make sure that the kids are hearing what you want them to hear and not just what they want to hear. That's what's going on in this passage. They wanted to hear about the liturgical calendar, but God wanted them to leave with more important truths ringing in their ears. Chapter 8 ends with an oracle about the coming universal longing for God. And here God is just reminding them of the bigger picture and the end goal. This isn't just about peace in Jerusalem. This isn't just about getting the liturgical calendar figured out or the economy firing on all cylinders again. This is ultimately about putting the people back into a partnership that is about producing the hope of the world. And so God lifts their head, as it were, so as to leave them with a sense of the grander narrative. We get that in verses 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, 
The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So here, the journey of the delegation from Bethel is picked up and used as an anticipation or an initial manifestation of a much larger pattern, a pattern that ultimately is going to land on the person and work of Christ. Through the prophet, God is saying, people are going to come to this house, to this mountain, seeking the favor and the presence of Almighty God. They're going to come from all over the world. Many strong peoples, many great nations are going to look to you to guide them in the way of salvation. They're going to turn to you for hope, for wisdom, for guidance and direction. So you need to get ready for that. You need to bear up under this discipline because I have big plans for you. Plans to bless you and plans to bless the world through you. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 